Hello, everyone, and welcome to another Plot Devices mini-sode spoiler review. Black Panther Wakanda Forever is finally here. It's been four years since the original. We're finally going back to Wakanda. I am uh, your host, Brandon King, alongside Noah Guzman. We are going to be talking all things spoiler in this mini-sode. We don't know if this is going to be coming out before or after uh, episode 39 of Plot Devices, where you will get our non-spoiler review. So if you've not seen the movie and you're still curious about it, you can go check out that episode and hear our non-spoiler quick abbreviated thoughts on it. But this is going to be all breakdown spoilers of the movie. So again, you have been warned. I will now turn it over to Noah Guzman, who is going to help us lead us into, you know, Wakanda and Tenokan and all these amazing, amazing things that we've got in this movie and a lot to dissect about it. So Noah, let's hop into Black Panther Wakanda Forever. Where are you coming to us from? Brandon! Hello, listeners. We are talking Wakanda Forever on today's special. I am recording from Piedmont Park in Atlanta, Georgia. This is a mobile plot device recording episode. Um, <laughs> nothing will take us away from the coverage we have to deliver to our listeners. Um, we're talking Wakanda Forever. It's finally here. I believe it made all of our lists for one of our um, anticipated of 2022. We all learned of the tragic passing of the lead actor, Chadwick Boseman. The passing of Chadwick coinciding with directly the passing of T'Challa in the MCU. Um, while that has sparked conversations here and there, uh, this is the approach that they've taken. And that, I think, is a big reason why so many people have raised ears towards Wakanda Forever. You know, what's going to happen here and how are they going to take care of that? Secondly, Wakanda as a location is the most, as far as we know, technologically advanced civilization on earth in this movie do we learn about possible opponents or possible competitors in that space we'll get into it but i think that that's why also people are excited to go see the black panther movies because if we're in wakanda we're learning about new advancements for their world um learning about what all types of things vibranium is going to be involved with in the mcu and i think it ultimately just like teases for what's to come or it gives impressions for where the mcu's tech is really headed because we know about the magic um <laughs> we're going to be learning about uh the quantums the quantum realm or space with ant-man but wakanda is all about technology brandon did you find returning to wakanda to be an exciting factor like as a location for the excitement for this movie i found it to be cathartic for the characters because you know we're going to hop into some of the you know more intimate themes when we go forward. But really, when the movie starts, it brings you in and it's go, go, go. And it's, you know, this is happening. You need to get on board. And, you know, we're going into spoilers, but T'Challa dies and we're immediately brought into the final moments of his life and immediately brought into the sense of grief that Ramonda and Shuri are feeling. When we eventually do see Wakanda and the capital again for the first time, you're right. It's not that kind of spectacular, you know, Ludwig Göransson's score, incredibly cinematic scale that we get from the first movie, but it feels cathartic. It feels like we're coming back to this familiar place. We get to see where it's been, and you see it through the familiarity of Ramonda's eyes. It does do what the movie is intended to do. It just doesn't feel at the scale of the first movie. I think the opening scene has us focusing in on a a panicked Shuri as she's trying to, you know, create some kind of. Uh, you know, I can think of an antidote or just like, it's like a saving grace. She's trying to create on the spot so that she can save her brother because we learned that T'Challa is in the other room and his vitals are dropping and they're dropping fast. For much of the movie, Shuri does take that champion spot. Um, it is well balanced though with Angela Bassett's Romanda, the, the now ruler of Wakanda after T'Challa's passing. And after that moving line in the trailer, I was just 
ready for Bassett to continually like delivering a powerhouse performance in this MCU movie. And I'm like, will she ever get a nomination? I mean, I don't think so, but is she deserving of one? Absolutely. Angela Bassett is, is not missing a beat here. Brandon, just on her performance alone. She should be nominated for Best Sporting Actress. I, I'm sorry, she just should. And, you know, we were talking when the first trailer came out about the idea of Shuri and Ramonda as dual sides of the same coin of family members who are going through grief and what that actually does to them. And Ramonda is very much a sense of, yes, I am hurting and I do have to have a sense of, you know, uh, a sense of humanity to her. And there, at least that beautiful sequence with her and Shuri uh, in kind of the past year near the lake when they first encounter Namor. But it's very naturalistic and very just calming, but also with the sense of morbidity and mortality to it. And you constantly feel those sense of degrees within her performance. There's a sense that she could constantly break and she does at certain points. And when she does, she is absolutely up to the task to meet it. But there's also the sense of just deep, profound sadness in her eyes and her, and in her movements that just keeps going with her performance. It's, it's really a tour de force, maybe one of the best individual performances we've seen in a comic movie, at least in the last couple of years. We're touching upon grief and how the different characters are experiencing that. And that is, that's central to this film from beginning to end. I mean, we're, we're dealing with the mourning Shuri and we do have a time jump of a year passing to Chala's death. Romanda and Shuri take a trip outside of the Wakanda city. And that's where they do first encounter Namor who comes right out of the sea. And this is the introduction of the first uh, Talokan citizen to a, a Wakandan citizen. And so up until this point, we had no idea that there was even a civilization underwater, but neither does the rest of the world. And that's exactly why Namor approaches um, the Wakandan royalty. He says, land dwellers, I think is what he calls them, or surface dwellers are after vibranium. And there is a scientist that has created a vibranium detector. And somehow that detector has located it at, Namor's home, which is Talokan. So he enlists the helps of the Wakandans to find the scientist and bring it, bring them to Namor so that Namor can take care of business. We know what he wants to do, of course. And what uh, Shuri and Manda are at crossroads of do we deliver the scientist? Do we, A, we don't even know where to find them, but if we had a clue, do we deliver them straight to Namor? And and at this point, they're, they're being very vague about who this scientist can be. But did you have predictions as to, you know, whether it was going to be Riri Williams? Or did you think it was going to be another, you know, left field prediction? I figured at that point it was probably going to be Riri, just knowing who was going to definitively show up in the movie and who was going to have a substantial role. And at first, she's kind of just another, you know, child genius in the movie. And we're kind of left to kind of assume oh, why should we care about this character? Like, Donnie Thorne obviously has a ton of charisma, like, that drives a lot of the character forward, but, like, why necessarily should we care? And eventually we do get to that point, and it provides kind of an interesting, it provides an interesting counterpoint to Namor, because when we're first introduced in that scene, like you're talking about, we do get a bit of sympathy for him, like, and the most worth it to his credit has kind of gone on record to be like, I wanted to kind of balance, you know, Namor being an asshole versus a romantic, and you get that in a lot of the movie, and especially in that first scene where, like, He's ready to do what's ne what he thinks is necessary. He's ready to, you know, cross that line, but he also wants to be kind and be familiar and, you know, make Wakanda as much of an ally as possible. He sees the value in them and sees, you know, th their worth and what they're willing to do. So I think it's kind of an interesting counterpoint at that point in the movie before we really get introduced to Riri and kind of see where her heart, you know, pun intended, is coming from. 
prior to recording, you had mentioned that Talokan, uh, Namor's home, has some similarities to Wakanda and its inhabitants. So did you want to speak on like what it means for these two civilizations to exist separate to the rest of the world and like what it means for them to protect their power? Yeah, we might get into some of the, you know, stuff of the screenplay and to some of the, some of the detractors credit that I've heard, Wakanda and Telecon are fairly similar. Like you even hear the backstory from Namor, just like, oh yeah, there was, you know, we prayed to our God and, you know, there was a flower that erupted and it gave us, you know, superhuman abilities. And even when you see the, even when you see like the Telecon, um, you know, architecture and, you know, societal standards, it does feel very much like any, you know, parallel world to Wakanda which is interesting. You could make the argument that it's derivative, but I think in this particular case, it kind of makes the movie more interesting. It allows us to really see the different facets of what Wakanda could be, what their policy could be if, you know, T'Challa had not brought them into the light of, you know, T'Chaka's policy from the first movie had stayed. And it provides this really interesting contrast of this is where we could be going. And it tempts Shuri to a degree later on to be like, well, maybe this is the degree. And it leads to a theory that I was coming in with, with where maybe... Shuri does go down the darker path. Maybe the death of her brother really does set in. And we get those hints in the movie. But I think Talakon as a whole provides a really interesting narrative device for Shuri as a whole. Even if you could certainly argue that it's not the most unique comparison, it, the most unique place in comparison to Wakanda. I agree. While it is not unique in its, in its, in the steps that we learn um, were taken in order to create Telokan. It is unique, just like how Black Panther was an opportunity for us to experience um, Black culture and to see it at its finest, at its at its most beautiful. I loved knowing that, like the Nochuerta was going to take on that champion spotlight of, like, for a lot of Latinos, because Namor in this movie uh, is. He has a different origin than what he has in the comic books. So his influences for the character are all uh, Mesoamerican inspired, um, according to this Smithsonian magazine article that I was reading. And so seeing that realized on screen, it was so amazing visually taking notes from the score, from the soundtrack, just diving again into a whole new world. Just like when we were introduced to Wakanda in Black Panther, in Wakanda Forever, being introduced to Talo. Talokan is a beautiful experience. And I, and I love just, you know, seeing my Latino community kind of right up there. Uh, yes, he's against the Wakandans, but it's still just so mesmerizing of a world that they created. I couldn't help but feel like for as interesting as it was, it was more interesting to who Namor was as a character <clears throat> and to where those developments go versus just being a cool civilization, which is what I think Wakanda was immediately described as. Oh, I de- okay. Yeah, I definitely see that where... Um, we are experiencing this world, but it's only, it's not only, but its strongest service is to its leader, which is Namor. Um, I wanted to go back to a point that you said, Brandon, which is like the relationships between Namor and Shuri. Shuri, we learn, oh my God, is it too early to mention that she is, she is making the ascension into the Black Panther? I mean, it's spoilers. We can talk about anything, but it's up to you. I mean, we could throw it right out there. So Shuri, we learn. Yes, we're mentioning it early. Yes, we know it comes later on. But we have to talk about that Shuri ascends into the Black Panther role. We'll talk about the details as to why just in a minute. But on the subject of Namor and what the relationship is like, it it is really interesting because we know that Shuri has uh, pieces of T'Challa within her, pieces of Killmonger within her. 
I think had Killmonger been the Black Panther and met Namor, this is a completely different story that we would be telling. Oh, yeah. Is that not true? Yes. No, what, one thousand percent. The type of world burning that Namor wants to do and, you know, any opposition is less than um, unless it was a Wakandan ally to me is like so it's so scary, but it's so like also exhilarating because, you know, Killmonger's energy, you know how much of a powerhouse he is. So I can only imagine like that is that's going to be one of my uh, Marvel what ifs is if Killmonger and Namor actually had a partnership. Well, it's funny because, you know, mentioning what if there's that what if episode where um, where Killmonger does become sort of the leader of Wakanda Jewelry, you could do a sequel to that with Namor and you could have that story, which is actually a fascinating notion. Uh, okay. <laughs> De- we're derailing from the actual movie. So let's go back to another introduction. We've talked about Namor for a second. Who, uh, let's add one of the most important details. Namor is the first mutant. He was born out of... He was born from his mother after she had taken the the plant that granted them the ability to um, escape their uh, land that had starting that was starting to become colonized, and they retreated to the water, and that allowed them to pull oxygen from the water. So then they became, what do you know it? I was going to say Atlanteans, but I mean I don't know what to call it. Talo- they became Talokans. Um, however. Namor's mother was pregnant with him when she took it. So when he came out of the womb, when he was born, he had winged feet and pointed ears like an elf. I don't understand the ears part, but I just know that it's a detail of the character. So I love that they kept it. Um, But it really means nothing more than Namor can fly and he can fly fast and he's agile. He's strong. He ages so slowly, but it's, this is a point to stop on because yes, he's a mutant that we're actually getting more details about because not every mutant can live this long, but he's lived long enough to be regarded as a god. That's interesting. The interesting thing about Tino Schwartz in this movie is that he gets to be so many things. And as we mentioned earlier, like he gets to be, you know, kind of a snarky asshole. He gets to be romantic and stuff, but he also gets to be flat out terrifying. Like if you remember the initial sequence when the Atlanteans are not the Atlanteans, when uh, the Talicon soldiers are taking the uh, the CIA warship and you see that sequence of the helicopter going away, and all of a sudden, there's just something that's taking out, like, three different helicopters, and you can't see quite what it is until there's a shadow at the very end. If that's not an argument for Ryan Coogler making a horror movie, I don't know what is. Ryan Coogler needs to make a horror movie at sea, because all we have is these bobbing heads coming out of the water. You don't know what they are, what what in the fish out of water, what in the shape of water is going on uh, here, because it, <laughs> it was so early on in the movie that, of course, we knew where the movie was headed, but to imagine like this attack has to be nothing other than the Wakanda. It's because this is insane types of um, like combat ability in, in a space where we wouldn't expect them only, only to now find out, no, there is a completely other civilization. And now uh, we don't really know how the world is going to respond to the discovery of Talokan if it's made public, but we know for the most part that um, there are a, they're like, they're a new global power. And that does lead into, you know, some of the stuff with the CIA stuff. So, like, we get Martin Freeman back, obviously, as Ross. But then, surprisingly, we get Julia Louis-Dreyfus in as Valentina from uh, Falcon Winter Soldier and a bunch of the Disney Plus stuff. And it's interesting to note because there's that fantastic UN sequence early on when Romano's like, hey, we know what you guys talk about. We know what your thought process is. Don't come screw with us. And then we kind of just see them kind of digging their own grave in response to that, where especially with Valentina, there's... a 
admittedly a bit cartoony sequence where you know uh, she we're, we also find out they were married which is also a whole different plot point that kind of blows my mind a little bit but we get that scene of uh, valentina and ross in uh, ross's house talking about like how the wakandans are responding to all of this ross has that comment of yeah do you realize what would happen if we were the only place that have uh, that have vibranium and with just this snaveling glare uh valentina's just like i think about it every night and it, it just goes to the idea of like yeah, Ramonda's always been right, and there's always been that valid concern, and it brings over those themes and ideas of, you know, colonization and imperialism of the first movie that this movie doesn't quite address, and it's not really in its intention to address, but it kind of brings those things over, and I found that kind of one of the more, one of the through lines of the movie that doesn't get explored as much, but it's still there, and you can still piece together a lot of ideas from it. Val's Incorporation, it makes me curious because I'm kind of waiting for her, though, to say, yeah, well, here's my team and it's going to be, you know, a U.S. agent. It's going to be Yelena. It's going to be, you know, these members that we've seen her recruit so far, but we're not getting there yet. So when she pops up, I'm just like, oh, here she is, like stirring the pot or like here she is pushing her motivation forward. But I'm still wondering like what her what her pinnacle move is going to be. Um, This movie doesn't really tease that that much but uh, i was happy to see just her return and like have a greater presence and not just have like a cameo recruitment scene throughout the first half of the movie it's really about finding that that scientist as we mentioned earlier we learned that it's riri williams dominic thorne plays her i wonder what the reaction would be if you were an audience member who was you know not on socials and you weren't aware that there was a series called ironheart coming out and then you go to the theaters and you see this young girl and she's tinkering with stuff and she has a um vibranium detector and now she has a suit like iron man that she flies right out of a garage and like blasts a drone down it just makes me curious for fans who are less you know tuned into the the greater space of the mcu and its updates how they would react to a character that's like iron man having showed up in this way I think if I'm talking cynically, I think they might be a bit overprotective of it. And I had a bit of the same reaction where it's just like, oh, she's working with Stark Tech. Is there a reason why? No, because it's Stark Tech. And I, admittedly, like, she does it cool. Like, the actual Ironheart suit that we both, both actually the suits that we wind up getting are pretty cool. But I think whatever the series is going to have to do some kind of heavy lifting to determine, like, what is the connection between her and Stark? Like, does Rhodey know about this? Does he approve of it at all? And, like, where that legacy of Iron Man comes in, because that is a, such a protective character to fans. But I think purely as a character in her own right, I, I think it totally works in the context of the movie. Although I'll admit I'm a bit disappointed that my whole theory that she was a student of the original outreach program from Wakanda, I'm a little mad that didn't pan out. I thought it would have been a cool detail. But at the same time, like she has more of a relationship with Shuri to make up for that. So I'm totally happy with it. That's absolutely true. You know, this movie doesn't do the legwork of showing us how Riri was connected or inspired by Stark Tech, which I, like, after we had our initial scenes with Riri and they weren't mentioning, like, her influence or her, I guess, fascination with Stark, not to say that he needs any more idolization in the MCU, but it's it's work that needs to be done, I think, for a character like this to, you know, uh, receive that baton of support that people rallied behind for Iron Man. So, I mean, we're getting a Disney Plus series, so I think that that's where they're going to spend more time with Riri's um, like I say, influences and inspirations and whether it came out of a place of, yes, I want to create work like Stark or Stark was an imbecile <laughs> and egotistical and I want to show how I can now hold the reins on an iron suit. And Brandon, the first suit that we see 
Uh, it is like that suit that uh, Iron Man comes out of the cave with. It, it looks like it's going to fall apart, but it operates um, smooth enough. And she has a nice, uh, you know, aerial sequence that we see. And then she gets an upgrade when she gets to Wakanda. And I, I'm a little skeptical or at least like hesitant to embrace that new look because I just, I, I'm scared of, honestly, this goes to a bigger point, but I think I'm scared of where the costuming is headed for some of these new MCU hero looks. Um, we get introduced to another soldier that Shuri has created, a soldier fit, I should say, and it's called a Midnight Angel, I believe. Yeah. These, I don't know if they have ties back to the comic books. I imagine they would, but they are essentially, I want to say that they can fly. I'm sure they can swim. Um, but they're like super suits. I can't, I can't think of the word for them. Um, Brandon, how do they look? I'm with Okoye. I don't like it. Uh, and and I, I think it's like a mix of like the headpiece and the dreads and like the kind of kilt look. It it doesn't look aesthetically pleasing. And then even when we get like the actual face reveal of Okoye in the end, like it doesn't fit her face super well. I get what they were going for. I don't know if there's a connection to the comics. Actually, I, I admittedly haven't read too many Black Panther comics. But like, I, I like Okoye getting more of agency and getting her own role as the Midnight Angel. Like I like the idea of Wakanda getting just more than one protector. I just don't think the costume looks all that good. We spent some time on Ironheart. Yes, maybe we'll get some new details on her uh, involvement with Stark or her history with the, with the name, with the tech in her own series on Disney+. Plus. Um, I actually love the dynamics that she has, uh, Brandon, as you mentioned with Shuri, because... I'm not going to lie, like Twitter's saying a little bit of things and I'm thinking a little bit of things. There's a little bit of romantic tension there, right? Uh, the shippers have begun. Uh, let, let's... <laughs> the shippers have begun. They have infiltrated. You know what? I would much rather take them than Shuri and Namor. I am right there with you. Move now to a point of uh, major themes of this movie. You know, for one, we've circled around the topics of grief. Uh, we did mention how different characters are going through those stages when it comes to Romanda, when it comes to Shuri. Uh, we haven't really stopped on the character of Nakia, and that's because Nakia does not actually come into Wakanda Forever's plot until much through the second half. Brandon, did you want to speak to Nakia's reaction to T'Challa's passing, or even ahead of that, because we learned that Nakia has actually been away from Wakanda for longer than just, you know, the time of his passing? On the one hand, it's a little weird, because even the explanation they give, it's enough of a reason. And again, Lupin Nyong'o is, you know, a spectacular actress that she can absolutely sell the emotional weight of it all. But it still feels a bit weird to be like, you know, if everyone else can show up, why couldn't you? There's the idea of, you know, how much heavy lifting can you do for the actual story purpose of it? At the same time, though, there is this really cool thing about, you know, Nakia as someone who, you know, is an, who's basically a global citizen who knows the world outside of Wakanda, who even in the first movie was one of the few people who understood the world outside of Wakanda, you know, going to Haiti and starting up a school. And even as uh, Ramonda says, like, oh, you're using some of like lighter based techniques than like what we use in Wakanda, but you're using it for, you know, communal operation, that kind of thing. And it goes towards what I think T'Challa's mission in the first movie was, which was let's, you know, extend our prosperity, like let's extend our resources, like what the outreach centers were originally made to do. And so I do like that idea of her, even leaving, you know, the place where she remembers T'Challa the most, that legacy is still following her and she's still kind of feeling like she has a role to play in that. And then when she is brought back into the movie, it does make it, it does make a degree of sense. Like, I also love the new outfit though. Like if we're talking the new costumes, like I really like her new kind of stealth diving outfit. I really like that whole thing. Um, but even just again, her, 
relations going back to it, her reunion with Okoye, which I think is just a beautiful, beautiful scene, um, and just her role in the movie. I don't necessarily buy into it wholeheartedly, but the way they do expand on it and her character, I think are totally worthwhile. Nakia, on a continued point from that, Brandon, retains like the element of, I don't want to say rogue, but she is more like, it's she's self-serving, but not in a negative sense, I feel. In the, in the first movie, maybe she was looked at as um, she's called outright a spy and only acting on her own interests, but she really becomes involved at T'Challa's expense um, or for T'Challa's sake. And then here in this, I think it's no different. I think she needed to be with herself and take the actions she needed to. Um, and it wasn't just affecting her. She went on to, like you say, create a community or uplift a community in, in Haiti. And then she's called back almost in the same vein. Like, we need you, Nakia. Like, can you, can you answer to this call? And when she does, I just, I admire that that's, that's a role that she serves in the story and she does it twice. And we'll be done yoga for that, for that type of expectations, for that type of uh, performance to have. You know, it's nothing grand, but it definitely is. It's entertaining as hell. It's, it's great to watch that infiltration into Talokan. It, it sparks a whole assault from Namor on Wakanda that maybe we may want to spend some time on. Um, but just Nakia as an individual, her working through her grief, yeah, was another example of um, that being central. Secondly, I think a big theme throughout this film and it, it, it hits a, it hits its head in the middle of the movie is the cycle of violence. Um, this hate that grows in Shuri's heart and this, she starts seeking vengeance and she's so determined for it because of what happens in Wakanda in the middle of the movie. Namor launches a full on assault on Wakanda because of several actions. So we know at this point, Shuri and Riri have been captured by Namor and they're being held in Talokan. Um, while Shuri does have this, this moment, this wondrous moment of being introduced to Talokan and Namor's history with his civilization, Romanda has nothing to believe other than, I need to save my daughter before she is killed. I need to save the princess of Wakanda. So she enlists the help of Nakia. Nakia goes on the solo rescue mission, killing several Talokan members. And that infuriates Namor. So he launches an assault on Wakanda, drowns many of its citizens. So many non-named characters, like so many characters of Wakanda just die um, that we never knew. But one of the major deaths that happens in the middle of the film is Romanda and Riri are both knocked unconscious and you know plunged underwater. Uh, we have a Romanda waking up and she's able to save Riri, but Romanda does drown, and she is not able to be resuscitated while Riri is. And Shuri has to watch her mother die in front of her. And that's where this hate, I think, is... It's not even born at that point, but it's just... Now she has a face, I think, to assimilate with, like, where she needs to target it. And I think that that's scary. That's scary for a character like Shuri, because with her brains, with her drive, we can only guess which route she wants to take. There's that sequence in the uh, Jabari caves where Shuri is talking to M'Baku later on, and there's a way that Shuri is lit and framed in the shot that gave me the sense of, like, there is a future of real darkness for that character. And I remember looking at, at that particular frame in that particular shot and going, are they really going to go down this? And there's enough built up, like you say, in that, in that previous scene where, you know, Ramonda dies to build up that character development. And I think it's also worth mentioning 
that when we talk about Namor and Shuri's relationship, Shuri had Ramonda and T'Challa and Okoye and, you know, all these characters around her who were constant, even, you know, M'Baku to a degree, like giving her advice and giving her counsel, but also knowing the very real threats and the very real complexities of the outside world. Namor and Talakan never had that. Like, Namor saw his mother and saw his people brutalized by colonizers and imperialists, you know, hundreds of years ago and basically isolated themselves since then. So he, they've really only been a part of themselves. They've been, you know, the isolationist policy that the, that the uh, original film was kind of leaning towards. And it brings together that idea of like Shuri has a support system around her and has anchors to her, even new ones in Riri, like constantly telling her what's right and wrong. Whereas Namor, even with his name, you know, they give the um, that really clever flip of the comic name, Namor, you know, no love in Spanish. And it even kind of gives that idea of like he has love for his people, but he has no sense of love or kindness for people who would dare pose him a threat. And so I like bringing it back to that idea of, you know, was Namor just fighting killing Rwanda? Absolutely not. But in his mind, he believes that that is the that is the necessary push that Shuri needs. He fully believes in Shuri's capacity for you know doing what is necessary or result or uh, resorting to unnecessary violence. And it brings together another really interesting dimensionality to both of their characters. It's another great reason why, like seeing Shuri or seeing the Black Panther's motivations shift in this film was it felt fitting considering the villain that they were up against. Um, why there is a gripe here that uh, we may spend time on, maybe we don't, but Shuri. So in the first Black Panther film, Killmonger, we learn, or we, we all have seen, he destroys all of the plants and like ritual chambers where they were able to perform like the Black Panther ascension kind of uh, ceremony. And so I don't really understand how they just allowed Shuri to recreate it. Um, they do make the they do like have the hilarious line of how do we know if this works? It will glow, <laughs> and then only for it to like beep boop up beep beep boop up up up, and then little like three D printing of a flower comes out, and lo and behold, it glows. <laughs> I found that to be a bit like uh, okay, it looks like like clearly we need to get there. I understand that, so we get there and. Nakia is able to, you know, take some pieces of the ceremony that uh, they can do in a lab and she performs it on Shuri. Um, Shuri takes the the flower, she drinks it and she lays down prepared for a meeting with the ancestors or preparing for, uh, you know, meeting on the ancestral plane, just as T'Challa did and how T'Challa met his father. Well, Shuri actually approaches a throne from the back <laughs> and she expects it to be her mother only to find that it's Killmonger sitting on that throne. And dun, he dun, is the dun. one. Dun, dun, dun. He is the one who she has to confront. And, you know, I don't, I wish I spent a little bit more time with the first movie just to understand like what the ancestral plane is meant to do, because is it meant to set you on your path as the Black Panther? Or do you see this as like a, you see who you see in yourself? Like this is, this is where my questions come from, because while there are, as we mentioned earlier, pieces of T'Challa and pieces of Killmonger in Shuri, I was honestly expecting, um, with all respect to the uh, to the deceased actor, I was expecting like even a T'Challa in the suit. You know, whether he spoke a word or whether anything was said, I was expecting the character to be there, but that doesn't happen. It's very interesting, right? Like, why show Killmonger in the throne? And you no, know, eventually we do see Ramonda coming to her, but like. 
why initially show Killmonger? And it's this fascinating idea of, you know, Killmonger for as important of a villain as he is, was always viewed to everyone pretty much aside from T'Challa as an outsider. Like T'Challa was really the only one who really reached out and tried to make him a proper citizen and like, you know, really embrace him as part of the community. And Shuri never really did that. So why does Shuri see him? I think it again goes back to the idea of like Namor is getting to her and the idea of, you know, T'Challa's legacy of, you know, warmth, the community and outreach. Maybe that's becoming more and more distant from her. And maybe somehow, like you say, what, what is the ancestral plane? I think the ancestral plane is really the idea of coming, you know, something coming to you that you need in that moment. And I think for better or worse, she needed to hear Killmonger's reasoning of just like, this is why I did what I did. This is why people like me resort to doing what we do, because we feel like there needs to be a sense of justice and this is how we get it. And it provides just this really interesting context beyond just a really great shock value of just, oh my God, they brought back Michael B. Jordan. This is so cool. But it also provides this really interesting switch up to Shuri's personality that we don't really, and again, it leads to that scene I was talking about later with her and M'Baku, where it's like, is she really going to go down that path now that she doesn't have one of her key anchors again. And it provides just, again, really interesting dimensionalities in the movie that it doesn't really explore to their logical degrees, but it's fascinating to think about. I mean, Dark Knight feeling. You die a hero, you live long enough to see yourself become a villain. Now she sees these pieces of Namor within herself, it, it brings to question, how will she decide if she even has the opportunity to? How is this feud going to end between her and Namor if they face off against each other is she going to take him out of this world that he's trying to defend with just as much will force and intensity and passion as she is trying to defend Wakanda and her home it's hard I think to see the reality of of what it means to take him out and how that will affect his world but she can't let herself fall either at the time of their final battle I think that you have notes for where the fight can go so I wasn't like on the edge of my seat believing that it was going to go one way or the other, because I, I think that it, it was taking steps to show us like Shuri, if she, if she lost herself in this, there was really going to be no, no end for her. And so at her, at her mercy, she doesn't kill Namor. And now we have Namor in the world of the MCU when he will come back, who knows, but it was really nice to see, at least in the credits, a stamp of introducing the Noche Huerta. And I thought that that was going to be like a new staple for these incoming characters into the MCU. I will admit, small gripe, and I, I will say, I love that ending fight sequence, but it might be one of the most brutal hand-to-hand fight sequences we've seen in the MCU in a while. Like, just every scene feels very crunchy and, like, to the bone. And it just, it just, Again, like, two incredibly fiery personalities coming to blows at it, and two countries kind of representing themselves in that one fight on the one hand i don't love how it keeps jutting back and forth between the actual ship battle i think there's just too much going on there for it to actually maintain it and number two i also wish that shuri had won a bit more by like you know her gadgets or her brains like going back to the idea of like shuri is not t'challa or t'chaka she's a very different type of black panther and like what she uses to win becomes very different but even then like it also goes to show her like how much she has learned and how far she has come as both you know a fighter and kind of indelible symbol of her nation. Uh, when it comes to the music, this is one of the final points that I'm going to be making here. Ludwig Gorenson returns and uh, composes the original score just as he did for Black Panther in Black Panther Wakanda Forever. 
I spent some time with the music that is from and inspired by Wakanda Forever. And the credited um, artists on here are going to be Rihanna and Thames. And really, I was listening to this earlier today, and I had to shout out this track because <laughs> listening to it, I just thought, damn, this is, this is actually some powerful stuff. And it's no surprise because that first soundtrack that came off of Black Panther, I mean, with Kendrick Lamar coming in there, uh, I think SZA uh, was attached to some of the tracks. It was just wonderful. So here, I just wanted to highlight one of the tracks that the artists um, credited are Snow the Product and E-40. They hop on a track called La Vida and it's just, it's so upbeat and it's so, um, it's just an exciting track to listen to. And if you haven't checked out that album, um, for sure, check out the score and then move on to the music from it inspired. Uh, this is a complete, I think, work of art when it comes to um, looking at this motion picture and then taking the sound that underscores all of it. So it was really great spending time with that. I was going to say, I have not had a chance to really sit with the soundtrack yet. Uh, I will say, as regards to the actual score, you know, it's Ludwig. His music is always fantastic. I haven't really heard any discords from him, really. But I will say, it's really interesting what he chooses to do with some of the actual music cues for this. I like kind of the off-kilter synthetic percussion sounds that he really utilized in the original Black Panther that kind of take it up another notch in this, whether it's, you know, the actual uh, Tenno Klan score, whether it's kind of the you know, kind of goofier moments when we see, you know, Riri and, you know, that whole crowd a little bit, but that, but also like the very kind of operatic swell of everything. And then obviously we hear, you know, Baba Mal's iconic vocals for the Wakanda score again. It's a great kind of collection of music in itself. It goes more experimental. I need to sit with it to really find out how much it really clicked. And also, you know, revisit the movie as well, but like really revisit just how much it really clicks um, in comparison to the first one, which I don't know if it does as well. Brandon? Moving on into ratings, uh, looking at Black Panther, Wakanda Forever, bulk of a movie, mass of a movie, one we were all looking forward to at the start of this year. What's your rating for this film? This is tough because part of me wants to be really overly praising with it, and part of me, part of me does really want to point out the critiques of it. But at the end of the day, I think I just have to stick with my 8 out of 10. It's really rather good. Um, the stuff that it does that's excellent is truly excellent, and I found it to be maybe the most emotionally compelling, narratively complex movie of Marvel Phase 4 sans Eternals, which I still think is still the best of Phase 4 so far. But I think for what it does as a tribute to Chadwick Boseman, as an expansion of Wakandan mythology and the royal family of Wakanda, what it means for them to see their loved one grieve and to see you know, their people suffering, where, they're, where they need to take their people in the future, I think it works in spades on a technical level Everyone is pretty much filing on the cylinders. And Ryan Coogler, again, Ryan Coogler pretty much proving that he doesn't have a miss in him. Like, for even as bloated as the writing can feel, for some of the, you know, nuance of the world building can sometimes fall at the wayside, it never loses track of the emotional through line of it. And for everyone who has been, you know, praising this film to hell and back for being, you know, this emotional tribute to its late star and to the sense of grief and to the MCU's really poignant sense of grief and ideas that's been going forward with it. I really do think it works in a lot of regards. Uh, I'd absolutely recommend you see, I saw it on IMAX and it's absolutely glorious in there. I'd encourage you to see this as soon as you can and really just get back into that world and really embrace it. And I've also heard from, from a couple of people, at least in my personal circle, being like, oh, I don't really know if I, you know, want to, I obviously, you know, respecting Chadwick and all that, but I don't know if, if I'm, you know, if I want another MCU project in my life, this is the one that you've been waiting for. I think it really does honor the, 
I think it honors the stuff coming before it and really embraces and goes for broken the mythology and the emotion going forward. It's a true experience of a movie, and I would really encourage you to see it. Seven and a half. Uh, while I enjoyed this movie very thoroughly throughout uh, its you know hefty runtime, um, it was just it was uh, mesmerizing to be brought back into Wakanda to spend some time with these characters, even at this emotional state of their lives. They're they're not missing a beat when it comes to emotional performances. Um, I think that the action is retained from the first, the types of technology that we see. We get some cool new gadgets that are fitted to Michaela Cole's character, which we didn't spend too much time on. But yes, they make plenty of introductions here, whether it's Namor, whether it's Ironheart, um, whether it's her. And I found all of them to be intriguing. Um, it does have some slower parts where I think it involves Ross and Valentina a little more than necessary. But uh beyond that this is a lovely story it definitely feels like we're it was returning to a focus point that felt familiar um more so than other iterations of marvel in in recent uh, memory like multiverse of madness and others that just didn't feel like they had that same kind of like tone and emotion and emotionality but behind them uh seven and a half for me and i really enjoyed this in the theater experience i think that if you're able to definitely get out to the theaters and watch this and that'll do it for our Black Panther Wakanda Forever mini-sode spoiler review. Thank you all so much for tuning in to listen. If you, again, have made it this far and want to hear our non-spoiler review, you can check it out on episode 39 of Plot Devices coming very, very soon. If you want to follow us further, uh, Plot Devices Pod on Twitter and Instagram. That's Plot Devices Pod on Twitter and Instagram, as well as our TikTok page at Plot Devices Podcast. Uh, and again, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, RSS feeds where you can find the show. Follow us there. Leave a review or rating. It does help us figure out what to do next and uh, passes us on to the algorithm and hopefully passes us on to more fans and advertisers in the uh, in the meantime. You can also follow Noah and myself. Our links will be in the description as well. And again, follow all the amazing stuff we have in Plot Devices coming very, very soon. So with that being said, thank you again for tuning in to our Black Panther Wakanda Forever Swear the review. This has been Brandon King, Noah Guzman for Plot Devices, and we'll catch you guys next time.